Okay, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you please turn in them to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And let's just begin by reading, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Stand therefore, having gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shotted your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance, supplication for all the saints. And and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." As Paul continues his letter to the church in Ephesus, he begins to address a subject that is clearly uh, an issue for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, and that is the issue of spiritual warfare. If I would, I would like to begin with a quote from Warren Worsby. He writes, Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground, and that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is, apart from the Lord. A reality that we as Christians, the moment we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we were immersed into a contest, into a conflict that we probably didn't even realize was taking place all around us. Now, I must preface our study this morning by saying there are many misconceptions and radical ideas when it comes to spiritual warfare. Many of the books written on the subject are not written on sound scriptural foundations, but supposition, conjecture, and personal experience. We have to be very careful that we do not create an idea or understanding of the spiritual world that the Bible does not frame for us. This is very important to our discussion. If you go to that, you know, uh, library of knowledge called YouTube, you will find many differing opinions on the subject of spiritual warfare. Some Christians, leaning more towards a Reformed tradition, 
downplay it altogether. They minimize it. They uh, don't really see its effect upon the world today as maybe they should. But on the other hand, you have those other brothers and sisters in Christ who see a demon under every rock, who are so out of balance and have had so many quote-unquote personal experiences that they have gone to exercising themselves before they leave the house in the morning. I'm being funny. I thought it was funny. I'm surprised you didn't laugh. (laughs) But I think you know what I'm saying. The Bible has a lot to talk about spiritual warfare. The Bible has a lot to say about the spiritual world behind the veil of our understanding and seeing. But we must always keep everything in the context of Scripture. Always. Not reading into Scripture what is not there, but simply reading what Paul and the other apostles and those prophets have been given by God to give us. And so like any theological subject, we at Calvary will always approach it on the basis of clear Scripture. Okay? Let's adopt that rule before we begin. Here we have one of the clearest teachings on spiritual warfare that we have ever been given by Paul. In fact, it's the most comprehensive in any of the letters in which he has written. So let us begin by looking at the few first verses. It's too much to take in one session, unless you guys don't mind going till three today. That's okay, the Bears played yesterday. We've got nothing else to do. So let's take the first couple of verses together this morning. He says, finally, my brethren, he's coming to a conclusion. He is signing off. He has had a long history with the church of Ephesus, and you can find glimpses into his ministry in Ephesus throughout the book of Acts. How when he first arrived, so many people were turning from their idols to the living God that there was a created an economic recession that maybe led into a depression due to the fact that idols weren't being sold anymore. Oh, rats, you know. And they actually then petitioned the governors of that area to arrest Paul and to bring him against, you know, for charges. And, you know, they ended up arresting someone else and they brought him there and so forth. And you can read it in the book of Acts for yourself. But Paul had a dynamic impact in Ephesus. It was a city full of idolatry. We then find Paul in Acts chapter 20 speaking directly to the elders, warning them that after he would to leave, that there would come individuals who would be wolves in sheep's clothing. Clearly telling them to be prepared for what is coming next. We know that by the book of Revelation 95 AD, that the church of Ephesus was already in trouble. Though they had an amazing work happening, Jesus rebuked them for having left their first love. But here, writing to the Ephesians, he is doing so as he is enchained. This is one of what's called the prison epistles. And he now wants the recipients of his letter to know who their true enemy is. And he then begins by saying, He says, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord. 
It is interesting that this strength is paralleled with the idea of maturity that is found earlier on in this letter. He sees that the preparation for the battle in which is yet to be endured by the believer in Jesus Christ is indication of their maturity in Jesus Christ. One of the greatest advantages that we give Satan is by dismissing his existence. The other advantage that we give him is not understanding the manner in which he works. Though we need to be fearful and reverent concerning Satan, that we in and of ourselves have no authority or power over him other than what has been given us through, in and through Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit, let us understand that Satan is very limited in what he can do. He is not the opposite of God. He isn't all-knowing. He isn't all-present. He isn't all-powerful. He's limited in what he can do. He has minions, if I may use that word, that serve him to allow his work to be done throughout the face of the earth. But as we discovered in our youth group on Friday, Satan has a tactic that he refers to time and time again. In his greatest opportunity to destroy the work of God, he used that tactic, the same tactic that he used in the garden, the tactic of temptation. And of course, where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ was victorious. In Matthew chapter 4, he resisted the temptations of the devil before proceeding into his earthly ministry. Satan's main tactic is temptation. And now that we know that, we can prepare ourselves for that. We can ready ourselves. We understand the manner in which he works. And as we continue this morning, I believe you will may be surprised by how clear-cut the Bible tells us what the tactics of the demonic world actually is in their pursuit of destroying a Christian life. The Bible tells us very clearly that we have three enemies. The first of those three is the devil himself, known as the accuser, one who accuses the brethren before God in heaven. He's known as the devil, one who destroys. He's called a murderer and a thief, and I believe all of these names aptly describe who he is. But because the devil is limited in his capabilities, abilities, and so forth, he has set forth strategies to lure the Christian away from the purposes of God. And the way he does that is through temptation. So the ruler of this world has created a world system designed to draw you away from the righteousness of God. And the manner in which he does that is the same manner in which he approached Jesus Christ. By appealing to the appetites of the flesh. Taking and drawing us out of the manner in which God would have us conduct ourselves and bring it into our own understanding of it and living that out throughout our lives. So he, what he does is he exploits those natural appetites that God has given us. He exploits 
our desire for relationships. He exploits our desire for physical intimacy. He exploits our fears in which we have, and so forth. And he created a whole world system to do just that. That's why John wrote in his first epistle, all that we find in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And our third enemy is our own flesh that we constantly have to keep in check by walking in the Spirit and therefore not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. This is our great battle that we are faced with. Knowing satanic tactics will allow you to resist the wiles of the devil. But God has also prepared us by giving us the whole armor of God, which we will look in detail next time together. But he says to those recipients reading this letter, he says to them, finally, brethren, be strong. And that term, be strong, is something that we find throughout Scripture. It means to become capable. And this is what encompasses the idea of maturity. With the idea of training and preparation, be strong, not in and of ourselves, but in the Lord, in Christ. If we are going to Uh, resist the deceits of the devil, the lies of the devil, the only way to do that is to know the truth. And therefore, we must be men and women of the Word of God. Therefore, being able to see the counterfeit from the true immediately. But this must be done in the power of the Lord. The Hebrew writer talked about this controlling power this governance. Paul called it walking in the Spirit. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 writes this, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise and shared in the same, that is Jesus, that through his death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subjected to bondage. Our Christian faith has allowed us to be removed from the bondage that we were kept in. That bondage includes the the blinding of the eyes, that we may not see the truth and the reality of who God is and what He is doing. But it is apparent that we in and of ourselves do not have the capability and the capacity to resist Him in and of ourselves. We must do this in the Lord. And to do this in the Lord, we must be walking with the Lord. We must understand that if we are going to stand in these confusing and trying days in which we live, We are already in a place of grave vulnerability because we don't know who or what to believe anymore, do we? And as a result, we find ourselves in a position where we can be moved very easily in one direction or another. It is at this time more than ever that we need to be grounded in the Word of God. That we need to look at the world through the prism of, of the Word of God. 
and not abandon what we do know to be true for those things that we are not sure are true. And as a result, standing in this moment. We know that God is not a God of confusion, so the confusion and chaos that we see around us, He has not authored. And where things may seem to be obscure and distorted before our perspective, clarity comes through the Word of God. It is not optional anymore, folks. That's what I'm trying to get to. We need to be immersed into it. We need to dive into the deep end of the pool without our floaties. We need to go deep into God's Word and seek it out every verse, every chapter, every book, if we are going to stand. One wrote about this extraordinary passage of Scripture. He said, Paul says more about the struggles believers have with the evil, with evil supernatural realm here than any other place in any of his letters. This may be due to the large measure to the fact that most of the believers came to the Lord from a background in magic, astrology, witchcraft, goddess worship, and various mystical cults. Paul now prepares these believers for resisting the ongoing hostile work of the powers of darkness. Now, we may want to believe in our hearts that because we don't have physical idols and those physical idols residing in physical temples, that we are not being subjected to a bombardment of spiritual deception. That's not true at all. As we will see in a minute, Paul warned us in the chief manner in which the demonic world would move across this world, undermining the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But he says here clearly, the way we prepare ourselves, verse 11, is that we put on the whole armor of God. Now that armor will be specified in verses 13 through 20. We'll get that to that next time. That you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. That word stand means to stand as if we have drawn a line. We are going to go no further. We're not going to be pushed around any longer. We are going to stand. And we're going to keep the ground in which we have taken And we are not going to retreat. But to do so, we must guard ourselves. We must prepare ourselves with the armor of God. Let me be honest with you, and this may come to a shock. Many Christians go out each and every day naked in the secular world in which we occupy. Now, please don't camp on that in your head too long, okay? But I think you know what I mean. We are not preparing ourselves for what is out there. We haven't taken the time to do so. And therefore, we are unprepared. And because we are unprepared, we're unaware of the wilds, which means strategic uh, tactics of the devil. And therefore, instead of standing our ground, we are constantly being pushed backwards. But Paul says that should not be so. We need to stand, especially now. We need to stand. There is no room for retreat or we're going to be pushed off the edge of the cliff. We need to stand now. In humility and in love and in compassion towards our adversary, the 
person before us that disagrees with us, that is hostile towards us, but we must stand in the days in which we live. For Paul makes it clear now in verse 12, and this is the verse that I really want us to come to this morning. It is a verse that has fascinated me ever since I began to study the Bible. He begins by saying that, yes, we have to put on the whole armor of God. It's an imperative. It's a command in which he is giving us to do so. That you may be able, meaning it's required, to stand against the schemes or the wilds or the strategic planning of the devil. But then he clarifies in verse 12, again, who our true adversary is. And he begins with this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Well, before we dive into who our enemy truly is, let us be clear in who our enemy is not. Paul is saying our enemy is not the person before us, who is opposing us, who is hostile towards us, who is persecuting us, that is not our enemy. They are doing so with blinders on. The same blinders that you and I had previously before coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They are doing so because they think in their heart that they are doing what is right. And they're coming against us. There is a new form of morality taking shape in America today. There's a new definition of right and wrong. Partially that definition is based upon the nationality that you are, or the gender that you are, or the sexual orientation that you adopt. But other parts of it now seems to be what medical procedures you have or don't have if you choose to take a vaccine or not. I have read article after article after article that it is our fault, anyone who is unvaccinated, that there is flooding in China. Really? But there's a new standard of morality. Now, what you choose to do medically is between you, God, and your doctor. That's who it's between. And I don't believe that we can subject ourselves to any one form of medicine fits all. But that's my opinion. That has to be explored, discussed between your medical profession and you. That's your business. But the world is saying, no, it's their business now. A new form of morality is is a rising in the wake and in the abandonment of the standards of God. And now we are seeing that it is no longer God, but governmental politics that are dictating what is right and wrong in a whole new way. But as much as this offends us and grades against us as believers, they are not our enemy. They are not our enemy. Paul wanted to make that abundantly clear. There are many scholars who believe that at the time Paul wrote this, he was chained to a Roman guard. And it gives me the impression that Paul may have, if I may suggest, saw the person within the soldier's, you know, uh, equipment. And he separated the two. 
he knew that that person needed Jesus Christ, regardless if it was his chained adversary. Jesus saw the same thing, didn't he? Allowing the Roman centurion to come to him, bequesting his request of healing his servant. We need to see past political affiliations. We need to see past ideologies. We need to see past personal opinion and see individuals for the individuals that they are. And if they are apart from Jesus Christ, we must have compassion upon them. We must. Because that's what our Lord and Savior did for us. We must have the same. They are not our enemy. But who is our enemy? That is the real question that Paul desires to answer. Notice he uses the word wrestle there, which means close, intense struggle and engagement. This is going to get close. This is going to get personal. This is going to get uh, messy at times. And you may know that if you have a family member, a son, daughter, husband, wife, mother, or father who adamantly opposes to your Christian worldview. It gets messy. It gets close. It becomes difficult. But they are not your enemy. He goes on to describe our enemy with very similar Greek words. And he describes them as principalities against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Scholars from the very beginning have tried to determine the identity of each of these four. The Greek language isn't very helpful because it is a sole occasion that we see this Greek word used in four different forms, but all with the same root. Though the term principality and power is used elsewhere in the New Testament, there still seems and appears to be an ambiguity to its true definition. It is certainly referring to the spiritual world behind the physical. Some believe that because four different uh, groups are mentioned here, that there is a hierarchy as there is with the angelic world. There's a hierarchy as there is with an angelic world in the demonic world. That may be possible, but we cannot clearly determine that from this passage. What we do know is that earlier on in the book of Ephesians, Jesus made it abundantly clear, abundantly clear that he has overcome these forces, that he has defeated them, that he has made a spectacle of them. But we don't know the exact identity. We do know that when Satan fell, John tells us in John, in Revelation, excuse me, that a third of the angels fell with him. These, of course, became demons, again, with the same limitations that Satan himself has as a created angel. For the Bible also tells us very clearly that these individuals were created by God. I believe initially in the form of angels. 
But what was Paul referring to? Why did he use this language at this time to describe this conflict? I believe historian scholars give us an insight to that when they say that Paul, knowing the Ephesian culture and the manner in which he did, if you step back and look at the environment in which they occupied, the culture in which they lived within, it was very eclectic, to say the least. It was uh, eclectic politically, it was uh, eclectic uh, religiously, and it was eclectic philosophically. It had uh, Grecian overtones, and then it had the Romans that succeeded them that often married the two, merged the two together. We know distinctly that Nero saw himself as a deity. He made that clear by printing coins, and on the reverse side of the coin, it's, you know, first side had his name, and the second side had Son of God on it. He made it abundantly clear in who he thought he was. And this is very interesting when they called Jesus the true Son of God, what they were comparing it to. I think that's interesting. But because Nero saw himself as a deity, and because... He saw himself as one who is to be worshipped by all the subjects of Rome. Raising temples, and Ephesus had one of those temples along with Corinth and Philippi, etc. People superstitiously believed because of the influence of mystical and cultic practices that were adopted in that culture that Nero received his position of authority by the gods, he being a god, and therefore those who served under him must also have some type of spiritual authority behind them. So Paul may be suggesting here, from the top down, it's not the emperor. It's not those who serve under the emperor that we wrestle against. But as you suspect, it is the spiritual entity and element behind them. Which I think is very interesting and fits very well within his writings. Now that being said, let us understand that Paul made it abundantly clear when you come to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, He says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things may, he may have, in all things, excuse me, he may have preeminence. So regardless of these spiritual entity, entities, powers, or abilities, Jesus Christ is superior to them all, right? Our dad wins, okay? So let's keep things in proper perspective going forward. But Paul also made it abundantly Uh, clear when he wrote to the Corinthians and the Corinthian uh, society involved in idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, verse 20 
Notice Paul says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? Demons. Even though it is just a created idol before them, Paul saw the demonic reality behind it and calls it out. And not to God. Meaning that they are not worshiping God through another means. Meaning that these idols that they have resurrected are not a substitute for God. They're truly worshiping demons. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. He makes it abundantly clear. So it tells me, and Daniel supports this, that the physical world has a spiritual world behind it. Now, if you want to get into some deep theological discussions, ask yourself which of the two worlds are truly the primary reality in which we live. It'd be easy to conclude this is the primary reality because this is where it's all happening. But if you go to a football game and watch Justin Fields take us to the promised land, he's a believer, by the way, uh, the real action is happening on the field, right? That's where the contest is taking place. But that's not the sole component of the reality. There's also spectators and everything around it that is taking place. So we cannot limit our understanding of reality simply to the physical world. We can't do it as believers in Jesus Christ. We can't. But with the increasing predominance of what's called naturalism, we want to dismiss all supernatural event because we just can't comprehend it. It doesn't fit our contextual narrative in which we've created. But Paul says that's not the case at all. Now, most of you will then say, how do we confront this demonic world? Some of you may say that it's solely in the episodes of spiritual, or I should say demonic, possession. Of course, Jesus contended with demonic possession. It was a reality. Paul contended with demonic possession. Demonic possession is a reality. But Paul, in writing his letters to the churches across the Gentile world, gave us a very stark warning in Colossians chapter 2. And we as Christians, we need to be prepared and understand this. Because not all of us will ever, or maybe none of us will ever experience a demon-possessed person. I know you have raised teenagers, you say, well, I think I may have saw a couple occasions at times. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that there is a a vastly uh, superior encounter with the demonic world. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it's it's a verse that is near and dear to my heart. He warns his recipients. In Colossae, again, there was all kinds of pagan worship idol worship, but it was also a center of philosophical reasoning. And he warns them very clearly in verse 8, beware, 
lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the traditions of man and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. In the newer translations, they have clarified the Greek phrase there that is used for the basic principles of this world. And if you have one of those newer translations, it is translated as such, the elemental spirits of this world. Paul the Apostle is saying that there's a direct correlation with secular thinking, secular philosophy, and the demonic world. Just as there is a correlation with idols and the demonic world. That's what he's saying here. And these secular philosophies, and we're going to qualify them in just a moment, these secular philosophies will rob you within your Christian walk. They will take you captive. They will cheat you. You will think that you are doing the right thing when in actuality that thing in which you are doing will not help you, but it will harm you. The word mug in the Greek that he uses there, I, should, I gave it away, the word that he uses there for cheat you, in other places it's the word cheat there means robbed you. It means to be mugged. You get blindsided by something you don't see coming would be adequate in its interpretation and translation. And while we are looking for a supernatural experience with the demonic world, our eyes focused on this type of event, we are clearly missing the tactic and the strategy and the assault that is taking place through secular philosophy. And then he clarifies, as he continues on, that these are not according to Christ, so they are of the wisdom of man, but behind the wisdom of man is what? The ruler of this world. There's only truly two kingdoms that occupy our world. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Satan. These philosophies and ideas are not according to Christ. And then he warns us to help us identify which philosophies we should truly look out for. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Number one. In him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. What does he mean by this? He means that Jesus Christ is superior to any of the created things within the spiritual world. That he is supreme. And because he is supreme, and because we must hold him, as Paul wrote earlier in Colossians, in preeminence, the first element of a secular philosophy that we must be aware of is anything that challenges the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Any idea that challenges the supremacy of Jesus Christ must be red flagged. But there's a second element also that we must be aware of. As he continues in verse 10, And you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. Notice the exact same words used again. The second element of any philosophy that must be red flagged by a Christian, number one, if it denies the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and number two, if it denies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And of course, I'm referring to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the provision of salvation. Any idea 
that cuts against that, that would undermine those two theological truths, we must red flag as Christians. And we must be aware of. Remember, Satan's ultimate goal is to come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to destroy the lives of individuals from keeping them from coming to Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate war. That is what we are fighting for. The salvation of those who do not know Christ. That's where we must engage. And any philosophy that is introduced will cheat us if we embrace it with empty deceit because it's again according to the traditions of man which is the flesh which we know the natural man cannot receive the things of God and according to the basic principles of the world which may be more accurately translated the elemental spirits that are behind these ideas. And I think it's imperative that we know that as Christians. This is the way we are being assaulted. This is why Paul says that we must bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. This is why we must, ha- we must engage in the conversation and pull down the strongholds of the enemy. This is why we must be men and women of the Word so that we can do so in humility, grace, love, compassion. Because these ideas are killing people. As one wrote in conclusion, he said the point of this this verse is to establish that the schemes of the devil are grand and far-reaching. Thus, the children of God must be aware and properly equipped to overcome the enemy. How do we stand? Let me leave you with two verses this morning, if I may. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4-6, through 6, let us understand, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into the captivity and obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. There's so much there to unpack. I encourage you to read it for yourself, but let me bring this out. Number one, Paul is saying that the weapons that we have at our disposal are not carnal. They're not fleshly weapons. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Word of God. Why would these be effective in the pulling down of strongholds that Satan has created to deceive and to destroy the world if there wasn't a spiritual element behind these strongholds, these ideas? Why is he even discussing or referencing bringing every thought into the captivity of a, a Christ if the, the philosophical idea, the ideology is not authored and created by a spiritual demonic host? This is where the true battle is. And if you want to engage in this battle, you must do three things. Number one, be a man of woman or of prayer. And I'm not talking just about the prayer you pray three times a day, Lord, thank you for this food. I'm talking about getting at it. I'm talking about really doing business 
getting on your knees and fighting like Christ would have you to fight. Number two, we must walk in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Imperative. And number three, we must be men and women of the Word of God. But I want to leave you with this encouragement that also is found later in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, as we again discuss the reality of the spiritual world. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, notice verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's what the cross did. The moment that Satan cried out in victory, seeing the you know, mangled body of Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross, That victory lap was short-lived because on the third day he rose again and the devil knew he was ultimately defeated. We do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. But we have to engage the battle as we are being instructed to do so. There are so many misconceptions about the spiritual warfare in which we face. But today it is being clarified by Paul himself. This is how we engage it. We engage it through the weapons in which we have been given, the weapons of prayer, the weapons of the Holy Spirit, and the weapon of the Word of God, which is like a sword in our hands. This is how we equip ourselves for the spiritual battle. And it is exactly what Jesus Christ displayed to us in Matthew chapter 4 when he Uh, went into that wilderness period after fasting for 40 days and resisting the temptations of the devil. Walking in the Spirit, 40 days and 40 nights of prayer, and reciting the Word of God from his heart in each and every occasion that Satan tried to tempt him to discredit his earthly ministry and, of course, devalue his sacrifice on the cross. But because he was victorious where Adam failed, again, having disarmed principalities and powers, he has made a public spectacle of them. Think of it this way. This is when the bully at school gets his or hers. When you mess around with the wrong kid. There was a bully in school, I remember. Uh, It was in junior high. He thought he was all that in a bag of chips. He would pick on everybody, and there was this little kid in our class who he used to push around all the time, and this young man was, he would take it and take it and take it and take it, but then one day, all of a sudden, this little kid had enough, and this bully discovered that his father was a martial arts instructor with a black belt, and this kid was high up on the list. And that bully got his, it was like Yoda fighting a, you know, a big giant. He made a spectacle of that bully. Jesus has made a spectacle out of our, the demonic foes that would come against us. So let us lean into him, walking in the Spirit, in the power of prayer, and the assurance of God's Word.